Uh, this week I googled control freak memes. Every single one of them had a picture of a jolly man or jolly woman holding many times a cup of coffee or some other beverage in cheers fashion. They all had a 50s vibe and they had texts that read like this. You do realize one day I'll snap, right? I'm not really a control freak, but can I show you the right way to do that? You think I'm OCD. I think you're a slacker who can't do things right. My world would be, much, would be so much better if everyone did what I said and let me make all of their decisions for them. I adore spontaneity, providing it is carefully planned. And if you would have seen my face while I was browsing these memes, you're probably doing so right now on your phone, you would have seen me smiling from ear to ear up in my office. I found them humorous, mostly because these memes are true for me. And I would not readily call myself a control freak. I prefer monikers like laid back, easygoing, relaxed. But these memes caught me red-handed. And they revealed my inner control freak. But that's what humor does, isn't it? It sneaks unwanted truth in the back door of our psyches. Truth we would never let in the front door with an accusation. And the hard truth is that we want control over our lives and others. I think it's put well by Christian author Paul Tripp. He writes, I'm increasingly persuaded that there are only two ways of living. One, trusting God and living in submission to his will and his rule. Or two, trying to be God. And you can count me among those in the second category. See, another way of putting trying to be God is just saying that you have power or control as an idol in your life. But let's be clear, having control as an idol dominates some more than others, but it's common in all of us. And here's some ways that you can recognize it, not just through memes. If confidence is something you prize, then control may be an idol in your life. Because people who, control, who value control frequently get the results they desire and thus they appear competent. If uncertainty is your worst nightmare, control might be an idol for you. If anxiety is prevalent in your life, then the fears of the loss of control could very well be what is beneath that anxiety. If you frequently turn to methods, research, lists, schedules, and routines, you might have a control idol. If others feel condemned, judged, and offended by you on a frequent basis, then control might be an idol in your life. See, the issue of control is about power. And when things are about power, they are political. And politics is really about stated or unstated agreements between people. I know that when you think about politics, you think about office politics. You might think about church politics. And all of us think about red and blue, elephants and donkeys, Democrats and Republicans. That's politics. But can I tell you that your marriage is political? Because there's always negotiation of power happening so you can come to a decision. Can I tell you that parenting is political? 
See, as infants, the parents have all the power. And as time goes on, that power is loosened and the children have more and more of it. I know this might be a new way of thinking about relationships, but we have to realize that politics is a part of each of our relationships. You don't have to believe me. But if this is true, then as Christians we have to ask, what does Jesus do with politics? We see it in our text today. We read the first 25 verses of chapter 23 of Luke. Then the whole company of them arose and they brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the, and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The word of the Lord. All right, so we're in the middle of Lent. We spent the last few Sundays going over this last week of Jesus' life. So let's recap for just a moment. On the Sunday before Easter, it's called Palm Sunday. And on that Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he was being hailed as king of the Jews as he was riding in because the Jews thought that he was going to overtake Rome. And he was going to become a great political leader. And that was on Sunday. But to demonstrate his kingship, he didn't do it militarily. 
Rather, he did it through his teaching and his preaching. And his teaching and preaching, it had great effect. And it had effect in two directions. In one direction, it gained adherence, mostly the populace. But also gained opposition, mostly from the Jewish religious leaders. This isn't surprising. Jesus has been getting under the skin of the Jewish religious leaders for quite some time. And now, these leaders are ready to do away with Jesus once and for all. So at some point during this week, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, comes to the Jewish religious leaders and offers to give Jesus over to them if they will give him some cold, hard cash. Judas agrees. And life goes on. The next few days, Jesus is teaching and preaching. And finally, Thursday gets here. And on Thursday, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Jesus predicts his death there. He needs some strengthening. So he goes with his disciples late Thursday night to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays. And it's while he's praying that he is bound by this armed guard who's been brought there by the Jewish religious leaders and Judas. And even later on Thursday night, these religious leaders take them before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish court, and they find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, which in the Jewish eyes is, deserves death. But it's not an executionable offense in Rome. So what these Jewish religious leaders have to do is find another set of charges to get Jesus in on before the Roman rule. So what do they drum up? They say that Jesus is trying to lead an insurrection, that he's a revolutionary, that he's trying to overtake Rome, that he is the claimed king of the Jews, so they say. And so early Friday morning, early Friday afternoon, Jesus goes through the trials that we just read here. He has one before Pilate, a second before Herod, and the third is against Pilate again. And these political leaders, Pilate and Herod, they play politics very differently. So we got to look at them separately. Let's look at Pilate first. What you see with Pilate is that he's a Roman. And he doesn't have the natural bias against Jesus that the Jewish religious leaders do. And so the Jewish religious leaders are trying to incite Pilate and outrage him. So they give him three accusations in verse 2. Do you see it? Do you see it there in verse 2? In verse 2, there's a string. And Pilate responds to these accusations and he asks, essentially asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Which really is another way of saying, tell me your politics, Jesus. Are you a liberal or a conservative? Do you lean red or do you lean blue? That's a fair question. It's fair because Pilate has a vested interest in defending Rome. And do you see Jesus' response? Jesus' response literally in the Greek, should be translated, you say. You say. Strange response. It's ambiguous. It's like Jesus is playing hard to get here. It's like he's dodging the question. Because in some ways, his answer is yes. Because it's true. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. But in other ways, it's no. Because Jesus being the king of the Jews does not mean he's seeking political power to rule a group of people or control a geographic territory. If this was Jesus' motive, he would have had soldiers with him in the garden, not disciples. 
And Pilate actually notices that Jesus is different. He notices that Jesus doesn't pose a real threat in and of himself. And that's why Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times. Do you see it? Verse 4, he says he's innocent. Verse 14, says he's innocent. Verse 22, says he's innocent. So if Pilate thinks he's innocent, how could he still sentence him to death? Well, think about it. These Jewish leaders are really fired up. And if you look at the response after those claims of innocence by Pilate, you see that the Jewish religious leaders' resistance increases each time. Pilate knows he's about ready to have a riot on his hands. So what does he do? He sentences Jesus to death, even though he thinks he's innocent, all in order to appease the Jews. So Pilate shows his political cards, doesn't he? He's a pragmatist. He'll choose convenient, convenience over doing what's right. Why? So that he can maintain power. Now, you don't have to go very far to see where we see politics played out in the ways of Pilate, do you? Take church abuse scandals, for instance. In these church abuse scandals, you have religious leaders who choose to protect the church's reputation over the healing of victims. Take elected politicians. They'll keep kicking the can down the road on, on important issues so that they don't have to take a hard stand and risk not being reelected. Now I know I can incite some amens about pastors and politicians, but that for most of us keeps the issue out here, doesn't it? How does it get, to get personal for the everyday person who may not have some title attached to their name? Well, it's this. Anytime you avoid conflict out of fear for losing your position of authority, even if that authority doesn't come with a title, you're playing politics like Pilate. But our passage here says there's more than one way of playing politics, doesn't it? You see it with Herod. Herod is very different from Pilate. The most obvious difference is that Herod is Jewish. Now, he's just a puppet king. He's just been put in place by Rome to make it look like Rome's not this overly authoritarian regime, so they have a Jew in charge, and his name is Herod. And Herod wants Jesus to perform some tricks for him. And Jesus will not play Herod's games. He's not going to carry out a miracle. In fact, Jesus just responds with nothing. The only thing he gives Herod is silence. And this infuriates Herod. So Herod mocks him. Not a surprise if you know Herod's character in the Gospels. Herod, this Herod is the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist when John the Baptist confronted him for his adulterous ways. So we can see that his temper is easily flared when his power is threatened. So even though Herod appears different from Pilate, verse 12 tells us that Pilate and Herod have now formed this unholy alliance. Did you catch that? And you know why I think they've become friends? I think it's their common confusion about how Jesus does politics. See, if Pilate were in Jesus' shoes, he would have chosen the convenient way out of this difficult situation. In Pilate's mind, 
Jesus, if he really was king, should have snapped his fingers and had the angels of heaven silence these Jewish accusers. But if Herod were Jesus, Herod would have done trick after trick in order to garner support and consolidate power around his talent. But the only thing Herod and Pilate knew was how to control people. And controlling people is a very shallow form of power. See, real power is changing people. And you know how that happens? You have to get vulnerable. You have to get susceptible to criticism. You have to let people in your life. You have to lose time. You have to lose money. You have to become weak. And all of these things are foreign to Herod and to Pilate. See, if you, if you do life this way, it's risky. And usually when you're in a position of leadership, you'll unconsciously try to control people's behavior through organizational policy. You'll try to control people with some set of rules. And that's superficial at best. It's just managing conduct. And heart transformation is what you're really after if you want change. But how does that happen? How does heart change happen? Our text tells us. And it tells us through the third political figure. Did you catch the third political figure in our text? He's not one that Jesus goes before in trial. He's one that you find in jail. His name is Barabbas. See, Barabbas was convicted of murder and insurrection. He actually had tried to do the thing that Jesus is being accused of. And put yourself in Barabbas' shoes in this text. Barabbas is sitting in jail. Barabbas hears these shouts, crucify, crucify him. And you know when Barabbas is hearing these shouts, he's thinking, here it comes. Doomsday is finally here for me. I'm just going to get what I deserve. And while he's sitting here hearing these cries, he hears the jailer walk down the hall to his cell. He hears his cell unlocked. He hears the door of his cell opened. He's led out of the jail and he thinks he's being led to his execution. His head is hung low. All when he gets outside the gates of the jail. And his shackles are unlocked. And the guard says, you're free. Do you see what happened here? The one guilty of death is pardoned and the innocent one dies. Barabbas and Jesus change places. The handcuffs, the disgrace, the mortal agony of Barabbas are transferred to Jesus, while the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of Jesus is transferred to Barabbas. This is an apt illustration, isn't it? This is one that's true for all of us as fallen sinners. Barabbas represents all of us. His story is our story because we were enemies of God, according to Romans 5. We've been locked up for our rebellion too. And that's why the hymn says what it did, what we read earlier. When it said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and follow thee. 
See, here's what we see in our text about politics. Jesus won't save himself, and that's what allows him to save others. And that makes him a very different kind of revolutionary, doesn't it? Jesus voluntarily makes himself weak for others, and that's what really changes people. Has he changed you? See, this week as I studied this text, I just saw myself in Barabbas, but I saw myself in the crowd too. (laughs) I saw myself saying, crucify, crucify him. It's not that I wanted to implicate myself in the killing of an innocent man. I don't want to participate in injustice. But I need Jesus to do what he's about to do, or else I'm going to be lost forever. I need the cross. I need the blood of Jesus. And I join the crowd, not in cruel hatred, but desperate necessity. I am a sinner in need of Savior. So do you see yourself in Barabbas? Do you see yourself in the crowd? If you do, you'll take a whole new approach to the dynamic of power, to politics, in your relationships. You'll start to give up power and become vulnerable. You're going to be put at great risk, sure. But if you want to love people, if you want to see change happen, this is your only option. Mine too. Let's pray. Father, would you lift yourself before our eyes and we might see you. Lord, would you transform the way that we do relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.